The Incomparable Podcast, number 75, January 2012. Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. My name is Greg Noss, your host. Jason Snell is away on assignment. Today we're going to be discussing text adventures. These are computer games that were at their most popular in the early to mid-80s. You'd run the game, and it would give you a description of the room that you were standing in. A textual description, just words on the screen. And would describe exits and objects in the room, and then you would use English sentences, often very, very simple English sentences, like get lamp, and um, inventory, and go north, to interact with the environment. The goal of the games was usually to collect objects and um, solve puzzles with them. You would be presented with situations that required you to think through how what you had in your inventory and what in the room could be used together. There was often scoring systems that would give you particular points for how you accomplished each of these uh, solutions, but more often the goal was just to finish the game, to get to the end to find out how the story concluded. With me today are Monty Ashley. Hello. Hello, Monty. And Steve Lutz. Hello, sailor. (laughs) Nothing happens here. Text adventures have a long and distinguished history. Um, They started in 1975 when Will Crowther uh, built the game Adventure. It was modeled on the actual Colossal Cave, but with fantasy elements. A man named Don Woods took it and expanded it and released it onto the ARPANET, where it uh, spread like wildfire as it was um, adapted and and rebuilt for new systems. The schools that it spread to included MIT, where a bunch of... um, undergraduates discovered it and built Zork. <laughs> Zork was created in 1977 and uh, on a mini computer and it actually launched the text adventure golden age. In 1978, a man named Scott Adams uh, produced a game, a simple game called Adventureland that was also modeled on the original adventure and then in 1979 Infocom was formed by the same people who had made Zork and they released it for uh, Basically, every computer system that existed at the time. Um, surprisingly, the golden age of text adventures only lasted about five or six years before Infocom um, went down in flames on the wings of Cornerstone, its first <laughs> business product. Scott Adams folded a year earlier. Activision bought the Infocom brand and then didn't do anything with it other than abuse it. And um, text adventures kind of went by the wayside. They gained graphics for a little while, and then they kind of mutated into the point-and-click adventures from LucasArts and Sierra Online. And today they only exist as games produced in amateur competitions, Um, but they are well-loved and have a glorious history that very, very few people (laughs) actually remember, given the participation in this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) What I'd like to do first, actually guys, is is talk to you about your first experience with text adventures. I mean, how did you discover them? What game did you play first? What struck you about it that, that brought you to this low point 25 years later? <laughs> Monty, why don't you start? Uh, my first text adventure was the original Colossal Cave adventure. I played it on a CPM machine we had at home. Dude, that is some street cred right there. My mother had a very high-tech job. She wrote Later than this, she wrote third-party manuals on how to program in COBOL. So we had one of those 8-inch floppy drive CPM machines 
It was an Altos, which I can't find any information about on the internet at all. Oh, I love their mints. <laughs> <laughs> so my first game was actually the first text adventure. Mostly what I like about it, I think, was that I didn't need anybody to play it with me because I couldn't get a good D&D group going at my <laughs> young age. <laughs> Uh, and and thus we discover the first common element of text adventure fandom, <laughs> a lonely, lonely childhood. <laughs> and my best friend and I played it for months and months. The trick about Colossal Cave is that you can get all but one point and have no idea where that last point is. And eventually we learned by reading the help files over and over again that you have to take this magazine... I think it's Spelunkers Monthly, and carry it into this specific other room and drop it to prove you explored there. Wow. And figuring that out was one of the high points of my youth. That that also brings us to the common experience of really unfair puzzles. Oh, yeah. This was complete nonsense. But it was in the help file. Well, in the help file it just said you get points for... Killing things, solving puzzles, and exploring. And carrying Spelunkers Monthly into room G. Well, I think there was a parenthetical about you may have to prove that you've been places. <sighs> wow. At wit's end was this randomly generated maze. So they could say you are at wit's end. Yeah. And it didn't seem to have any other purpose in the game other than maybe you're supposed to drop something there and the magazine was in the waiting room. That's horrible. You're a better man than I am. <laughs> I had a lot of time on my hands. I could have been perfectly satisfied not to have that last point, personally. Um, Col- Colossal Cave Trivia, Microsoft uh, MS-DOS 5.0 shipped with a version of it. Weren't there like five versions of that? Oh, there were dozens. Yeah. It, the source code, actually, the, the original was written on a PDP in Fortran, and I got the source code in, geez, 86, I think, and it had been run through an automatic conversion to C. And so I, I thought, well, this is interesting. I'm going to take a look. And I looked at the, the source, and it was C automatically translated from Fortran. And then I closed up the file and went on with my life. <laughs> is that the programming equivalent of something that's been run through Google? Yes. Yeah, two Chinese and back. Steve, what about you? What was your first game? Well, I actually didn't start with text adventures. Um, when my parents bought the Apple II instead of the uh, TRS-80 color computer that I really wanted back in 1979. Um, they also picked up a couple of uh, assorted games. And among them was something called Mystery House, also known as Hi-Res Adventure Number 1, uh, which was the first of the online systems adventures uh, made by Ken and Roberta Williams, uh, which were... Became Sierra Online. Became Sierra Online. Eventually, um, the same team, or at least Roberta Williams, produced King's Quest, and uh, you know they they proceeded on into adventure history of the various games that I that uh, that we got when we purchased that first computer. Mystery House was the one that really uh, kind of sucked everybody in the family in and uh, and took up all our time. Um, and again, it wasn't it wasn't text. It was a two word parser. There was. Uh, a, there was some very rudimentary graphics at the top, um, rendered in uh, lovingly in black and white and green and purple, which is what the Apple produced in high res mode. Uh, I never quite figured out why that was exactly, but uh, at least I had 
the white and the purple and not just green that my friend Mike across the street had. Uh, and then we had four lines of text at the bottom. It was a two-word parser. Um, the uh, the images looked like they'd been drawn by a two-year-old on uh, a very rudimentary digital pad of some kind. You're being generous. Yeah, I really am. They were they were pretty terrible, and they, they didn't really get much better over the course of the next five high-res adventures. They did improve a little, uh, and then they introduced color at one point. Um, but my mom, in particular, really took to the the uh, to, to mystery house and to adventure games in general, um, and so she systematically brought in all the various uh, high res adventures and lots of other graphic adventures, um, many of which are lost to the mists of time, and rightfully so. Uh, and then eventually. From there, I heard about Zork in, uh, we had this massive volume of game reviews, which really, I mean, that was the only place you found game reviews back in the day. It was either in some magazine like Soft Talk or, uh, you know, some sort of hobbyist um, magazine or in this gigantic book of reviews that you'd buy. You know, we, we didn't have no highfalutin internet to go looking up reviews on. So uh, I ran across Zork, and it sounded fascinating. And one day, my friend Mike had a copy, and I borrowed it and uh, spent spent months uh, with that game, uh, kept finding excuses not to return it until I solved the thing. And uh, it went on from there. The rest is history. You know, if you use a hole punch to uh, add a right protect notch to the other side of the floppy, you can store on both sides. Yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> Storage was not was not really an issue in my early gaming. <clears throat> in fact, uh, that uh, mystery house came in a, a Ziploc bag with one blue sheet of paper as the instructions. Uh, and they mentioned something like there was a sentence fragment towards the end of that uh, that sheet of paper that said, "You can save game as well." And we didn't know what the hell that was. All we knew was that when we typed save game, it said something about overwriting previous games, and that freaked us all out. And so we didn't, we never did it. We thought we were going to write over the entirety of the game, and, 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 and that would be it for Mystery House. The CPM version of Colossal Cave I played had a save game system where you'd type save game, and it would quit the game completely. And then you were supposed to save the core image of the computer. <laughs> and wow. I'm still not sure what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we played through Mystery House without ever saving the game, which was a massive pain because you had to visit every room before you could uh, find the trap door in the attic. You actually have to, had to have been in every single room in the game. And there were several rooms that were kind of off on, you know, branching paths where there was just nothing there at the end of that path. So after having played two or three times, we knew, oh, yeah, don't bother to go down this hall on the second floor because there's nothing there but a poorly drawn bed and uh, a window that looks more like a refrigerator. And uh, so it took us, it must have been weeks before somebody just accidentally, you know, uh, in desperation, wandered all of the rooms and then chose to look through this telescope out in the forest and saw suddenly there was a, a trap door in the room. So just the Lutz family finishes dinner and gathers around the Apple II and says, I know, let's play Colossal Cave, or excuse me, High Res Adventure number one. Okay, and they load it up and they start from the beginning every time. It was not a massive game, so it wasn't a big deal. And 
as I said, most of the family was pretty driven to finish the thing. We we're fairly competitive, so everybody was trying to finish it first. So it really was just considered kind of a minor nuisance at the time. I mean, we didn't know any better. Hell, we hadn't seen computer games before. It was a wild frontier back then. You could do anything. Strange and wonderful technology that makes you start from the beginning every time. Yes, yes. Well, you know. I don't that's... I don't remember what my first game I I have a vague memory of going over to a friend's house in like junior high and he had an Apple II. Uh, not an Apple II Plus, an Apple II. And um, wow. playing some Scott Adams adventures. Uh, Adventureland was the first, but I, I couldn't tell you anything about it. The first game I really remember is Zork. And the what we do is take a <clears throat> pirated copy and punch a hole in the disc so you could flip it over and store the games on the other side. And so you had one nice little five and a quarter inch package of the game on one side and the and all your saves on the other. I, I completely fell in love the first time I tried Zork. It was just amazing. Um, and I'm actually surprised that, that it's not what you guys started with. I mean, it was such a, a phenomenon as far as they went in 1980. It was exciting to get Zork because I started before Zork came out. So... I had to suffer through Colossal Cave, which was fairly interestingly written, but mostly just a bunch of descriptions of caves and random treasures. And then the Scott Adams adventures, which are just horribly written. So when when Zork hit and it was something that had a sense of humor about itself, it was tremendously exciting. Plus, you could type more letters and it would recognize words. I remember Adventureland only recognized the first three letters. Zork went to six. Yeah. That's my the the first game I bought, the first Infocom game I bought, and my favorite to this day is Deadline. It was their third game, and it was the first one that included feelies. You know, the you would buy the game, and it came in a sealed inspection envelope, and you'd had to slide a knife under it to break the seal, and inside were little pills that had been found near the murder scene and all the photographic evidence. And um, in the game, there's a gazebo, and I, being... 13, 14 years old, um, had never heard of a gazebo. This was a strange and new world for me. And so um, I knew, however, that the game only parsed up to six characters. And so I thought it was a bug, and it was a gaze box that had just left the X off. And if I could just briefly ask you, what did you think a gaze box was? It was something in a garden that you could walk into and apparently look out of. It was a well, boxy structure box that you could gaze, you could gaze out. out of it. There you go. That makes perfect sense. Sure. It's a gaze box. <laughs> I learned lots of words from, from my early Infocom, like men here. Or plover from uh, Colossal Cave. There's a... Well, that's not actually a word, though, is it? It's a bird. Oh, it is. Steve's still learning words okay. today. I think it's an emerald the size of a plover's egg, which sounds all well and good, but I don't know how big a plover's egg is. A plover's egg. Wow. I remember looking up men here just to figure out what it was. Well, they say standing stones in the description, so if you knew what those were. You did? No, I didn't, so I had to look it up, too. Have a lot of experience with gaze bows and standing stones? And standing stones, yes. The two tend to go together. My my gaze box <laughs> is full of men hairs. <laughs> um, and the, I just, I, I mean, for me, playing adventure games, and it sounds like for Monty at least, too, oh, and for, actually for Steve as well, was a really social experience. I mean, 
we would sit around and play like the Atari VCS with everybody in the neighborhood sitting around, but there were only one or two really hardcore adventure gamers in my neighborhood. And we would sit around and try and solve puzzles together, taking turns driving. I remember Planetfall, one of the later, right where I think Infocom hit its peak, really, in that area. Planetfall, I played at my house on the phone with a friend who lived two blocks away who was playing it at his house. And we were just talking to each other the whole time for three solid days saying, I found a circuit board. I figured out how to get that robot to shut up. Oh, my God, have you done this? And You killed Floyd! Yes, that was very, very sad. Bastard! That's actually the, that, that moment in, um, in Planetfall is a, a lot of people cite that as like the first time a computer game made them cry. I, I'm not going to own up to it, but I, I remember it being an emotional moment. Yeah, it sounds like Spelunkers Weekly would have made me cry a little bit. <laughs> I was definitely emotionally affected by it. By that point in the game, I had spent a lot of time with the innocent childlike robot Floyd, and when he sacrificed himself to save me, and then for no reason sang a song that took up the entire screen. <laughs> the, the Ballad of the Star-Crossed Lovers, yes. which for no reason recapped the plot of the previous... Infocom game Starcross. It was a great moment. I think that was one of the one of the earliest, if not the first moment that I remember the whole debate about whether computer games can be art came up, and it still rages to this day. Roger Ebert is wrong. Yes. So, uh, Monty, what, what's your favorite game? Just going back in history, the games I thought were the best were either Trinity or Lurking Horror. Uh, Trinity is this weird, almost plotless combination of Alice in Wonderland and the development of nuclear technology where you end up having to go to different places in time where nuclear bombs happened and make sure that they do. There's also an overlay of Mary Poppins and Peter Pan going on too. It's very odd, but very evocative. And the other one is Lurking Horror, which is the one that's very Lovecrafty, and set at... Well, it's an homage to love. Mm-hmm. Brian Moriarty wrote Trinity, right? And he went on to do a lot of Lucasfilm stuff like The Dig and Loom. Did he? I don't think he was involved in The Dig, but he, he definitely did Loom. Um, I, I, I remember when it came out, a lot of people were talking about it like it was a turning point. That and A Mind Forever Voyaging were like, like Planetfall was you know an, an emotional moment in interactive fiction. Uh, AMFV and Trinity were literary moments where it wasn't just a, a game anymore. It was it was a story. I wasn't crazy about A Mind Forever Voyaging as a game. There was way too much of just walking through the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there really was only one puzzle to speak of. In yeah, the there's game, one puzzle. Yeah, yeah, like you had a whole lot of things you were required to do, but mostly your job. Well, that's, it was a novel rather than a game. It was just a, a novel you interacted with. Thus, what text adventures became is interactive fiction. They started experimenting with with things other than just adventure games. Well, they were experimenting fairly early. Like, Suspended is a crazy idea for a game where you have to control six different robots, each of which interact with the world in a different way. So the only way to operate things is you have to 
fix Iris's sight because Iris is the only one who can see things. And then once Iris works, you can look around and use the feeling robot to feel what's broken. That was written by Michael Berlin, who was an established science fiction author. Yeah, that was their first attempt at really getting ambitious. And it was also, I think, the first game to feature an impossible mode, right? Yeah. that Which was genuinely impossible. Yeah, you'd start it and the world would end in six turns or so. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! Just like real life. What I liked about that game was when we were trying to solve it, my friend Mike and I figured out that you could use any robot's description. Because everything in the game, each robot would describe differently. So Iris would say, the blue thing, whereas Auto would say, the thing that goes Bing, because Auto was the listening robot. <laughs> but eventually we figured out that if you used Wiz, who was the Courage of Librarian robot, you could just call everything the LH1 or the PX2, and that would save your typing a lot. The greatest thing Infocom ever did was shorten inventory to I. It was L, and again was G, which was yeah. huge. Just before this podcast, I was playing uh, a very early version of Zork 2 that did not have G for again, and I yeah. felt lost. Um, Steve, what was your what's your favorite game? Well, it's a toss-up for me. I, I don't think I'm quite as uh, as experienced with the Infocom canon as you two, because I never quite got around to doing Trinity. I think I'd moved Loser. on to Ultima by that it's point. It's so good. Play it now. Oh, no. I was I had just branched off onto a different path of loserhood at that point. I was I was more into <laughs> Ultima and Wasteland and other RPGs by that point. Um, but uh, of the ones that I have played, it's a toss up for me between Enchanter, which I just really like the dynamic of collecting spells. I think the the OCD part of me, which is like ninety <laughs> percent of me, really enjoyed that uh, the whole experience of walking around collecting spells uh, and. It was nice to be in a fantasy environment where there was less randomness than Zork, and the difficulty level wasn't just over-the-top and unfair. Um, I think that was probably the first Infocom game that I played through uh, without having to look at any hint anywhere. It, Zork kind of suffers from the early adventure game problem of, we're just making puzzles up as we go. We right. need another puzzle, we need another puzzle, we need another puzzle. Yeah, and a lot of it feels like they just came up with puzzles and slammed them together in, in a totally haphazard way. I mean, there's not really a lot of coherence in the fantasy world there. Right. You know, like the baseball diamond puzzle has no context in a fantasy setting. It's I have played Zork probably 50 times by this point, and I can play the whole thing without drawing a map. I still don't understand the baseball puzzle at all. <laughs> well, there's there's a bat, and it says Babe Flathead. Right. I, you're supposed to swing the bat, you're supposed to find the bat, swing it, and then run in a diamond. Yes. I don't know what direction the diamond is supposed to go. I think your only available directions are northeast, northwest, southeast, and southwest, right? I mean, you can't go north-south. And everything says diamond. I mean, it's like a diamond-shaped or an angular room with a diamond-shaped window. Um, even even assuming you have the baseball context that's required to understand the puzzle, explain why it's in a fantasy setting again. I can't, that I cannot do. Well, you see, the Flatheads were famously eccentric <laughs> and extremely rich. So they would do crazy things like hollow out a volcano just to store their one crown. And build a flood control dam. Yes. So clearly Babe Flathead wanted to have an underground baseball diamond. He was the big blue ox Flathead, right? Yes. yes. 
while Duncan Thrax was uh, was pioneering double Fanucci, um, Babe Flathead was working out the rules for a rudimentary version of baseball. Uh, that's that's one of the reasons I liked Deadline so much. It was outside of the canon that was dragged from you know MIT when they were just throwing the game together. Right. It was start to finish written as a coherent experience. Yeah, and that's 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 exactly why I liked Enchanter um, because it, it flowed. All the rooms made sense. They they you could understand why they were where they were. Um, as a result, it ended up kind of I think a little bit more of a linear experience, but really enjoyed it for that for for all those reasons. Um, and then second, which may or may not be first, I I, I kind of go back and forth. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, would be Leather Goddesses of Phobos. Oh, you pervy little bastard. Which had all of the humor of uh, of hitchhikers, plus sex. Seven-bit ASCII sex. Plus far less difficulty and more reasonable puzzles. And Except uh, for that stupid maze where you had to hop every se- seven steps and squeak God. every three steps or whatever it was. Yeah, I don't, for some reason I don't recall that. Maybe I blacked that out of my memory. We We wrote that out. Yeah, you had to. Eventually, you know, just just writing out the commands, just so we would make sure to hop and do everything that was necessary, every proper turn number. Oh, okay, yeah, that's coming back to me. Yeah, that that kind of sucked. <laughs> so, what'd you like about it, other than the the naughty bits? It was funny. I mean, it's all of the all of the Infocom games were funny on some level, but I, I always enjoyed Moretzky's uh, work, and um, you know, I. I suspect that he's largely responsible for why Hitchhiker's Guide was so entertaining as well. Well, With on the, the Douglas Adams podcast, there um, we talked about how legendarily bad Adams was with deadlines. Right. And they eventually just kind of chucked the game to Merzetsky and, and he finished it. Right. Which is also why bureaucracy is credited to the staff of Infocom and in tiny little eight-point font, <laughs> Douglas Adams. Um, actually, the Infocom implosion, you know, they were founded as, as they were going to write new software. They weren't just going to port Zork and continue to do adventure games, but it right. turned out to be so profitable that they just kept going gangbusters. And then when they actually did come out with a business product, which was their database cornerstone, in 1985, it fell flat on its face. Um, one of the advantages they had when with their adventure games was they wrote a bytecode interpreter, which is nerd talk for something that could take a very, very compressed script and squash it all onto a single, in the case of my Atari 400, 90K floppy drive, and still include a, a reasonable amount of text. Um, and then they could just port the bytecode interpreter to each of the new architectures, whether it's Apple II or Commodore 64 or Monty's family's CPM machine. By that point, we had gotten better computers at home. <laughs> and um, and so they could release all these games for all these different platforms at the same time because the same script run and ran on each of the bytecode interpreters for each of the machines. But they tried the same thing with Cornerstone, where the, the product was written bytecode interpreted, which meant it was very, very, very slow. And around 1985, you know, it just... The, the function of computer games is very different than the function of business software, and slowness doesn't help, and they never ported it to anything other than the PC. 
Well, there was no point. Everybody was using PC for the Enterprise at that point, so... You just used the word Enterprise, not in a Star yes. Trek context. Yes, I know. I'm sorry. Their whole uh, their whole reason for in doing an interpreted database was pretty much out the window at that point, but right. they were stuck, so... And they're stuck with the overhead, and they're charging $500 for something that didn't include a natural language parser, which is what they were known for, and the company just kind of crumbled at that point. And it's their greatest work was behind them at that point. Oh, I don't know. I think that they were still putting out uh, Trinity. I think Trinity was a pretty late one, and Lurking Horror was in their last year. Trinity was 86, but they were all... They were doing James Clavell's Shogun. You know, they were, they were grasping at straws. They did Plundered Hearts, which, nothing against Plundered Hearts, but... It, they were looking for new markets. Yeah, Cornerstone was released in 85, and that meant that Trinity, Leather Goddesses, uh, Bureaucracy, Stationfall, which was admittedly not as good as Planetfall, Lurking Horror, um, you know, the two somewhat lesser Zork entries, th those were all post-Cornerstone. Post so they were still putting together some decent games. Towards the end when they did Shogun and, uh, you know, their... their feeble attempt at RPGs, which was, I think, what, quarterstaff? Uh. <laughs> but they also, they did, they did like Border Zone, which was a fine game, but it was, it wasn't a coherent story. It was just a bunch of little vignettes. That one, they were trying to add graphics, but they weren't doing it well, and it was ASCII graphics. Tell, tell me that, that Nord and Bert couldn't make heads or tails of it is not a, a weird game. <laughs> No, I will not tell you that. I still kind of enjoy playing that, although there are a couple specific puns in that that still make me very angry. The, the spoonerism section still runs through my head. Some of those aren't spoonerisms. <laughs> <laughs> tell us how angry it makes you. <laughs> uh, they did, it, did, did anybody in the world play Sherlock? I played Sherlock. No. Well, Monty, and then nobody else. Uh, Sherlock is very unsatisfying. What about Arthur? Never played Arthur. You can't even get started in Sherlock unless you know that Dr. Watson keeps his stethoscope in his hat. <laughs> is hat a euphemism? It could be. I don't know. Everything's written in this weird British. Yes, they use the term bowler. That could be anything, really. <laughs> I just did the, you know... It seems like they were grasping for new markets. Like, Sea Stalker was a young person's game. And that was earlier, admittedly. But it just, they didn't... Maybe I was growing up and, and discovering at least my interest in girls, if not actual girls. And they didn't grab me the way, like, Deadline or Starcross or Suspended did. Well, I feel like in that later era, while they were also doing rich, interesting games like Trinity and Lurking Horror, they were also trying to do games that had multiple story options in them. Like Moon Mist. Uh, Plundered Hearts, Cutthroats, and I think Sherlock all had three different possible plots you could follow. Which... Well, because they were always chasing replayability. Yeah. They, which they never had in their early games. You know, once you were done with Zork, you were pretty much done. In fact, I played it just out of sheer uh, nostalgia a couple of days ago, and it took me two days, and I still remembered exactly where everything was, and it's been two decades since I last touched the thing. But then again, I played it again, didn't I? So replayability yeah. is... <laughs> That's why I have all the Infocom games on my iPad, so I can play them whenever I want and feel really, really smart. Just, just out of curiosity, what do you think could be used in that space of your brain that's 
taken up with Infocom walkthroughs. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It'd probably be ABBA lyrics or something if it wasn't Infocom. I'm, someday I'm going to find myself west of a White House, and I'll know that I just <laughs> have to go north, north, up, get egg, down, south, east, open window, west, west, open case, and so on. Yeah, but the damn thief, the randomness. That was my, my most hated thing about the early Infocom is the random elements. It always drove me nuts that you couldn't consistently kill the troll or that the thief would pop up and swipe something and make your game unwinnable. Well, you know you can save the game right before you do that. What is, explain this save game thing to me. <laughs> well, see, first of all, you're better at killing things when you have more points, so you should get yes, all Yes, I the only treasure. just learned that a couple of days ago. <laughs> and second, you can get everything back from the thief after you kill him. Yes. And you should use the nasty knife against the thief because that's better. But the sword is better against the troll. Wow. Do not, do not use the rusty knife against anything because it is cursed and will kill you. Right. You can throw it, can't you? You can, but it will. the rusty knife will turn around in midair and stab you in the throat. Oh, yeah, there is that. One of the proudest moments of my young life was figuring out that the dexterous thief is going to be able to open the egg where I, fumble-fingered me, cannot. You see, you have to open the egg because there's a beautiful clockwork canary in it. And then you have to use the canary oh, outside man. in the trees to get the bauble. He's fuging. Somebody's <laughs> bring him down. <laughs> this is important information. Anyway, Infocom blew up. It was acquired by Activision. They puttered along for another couple of years and then just started re-releasing greatest hits. And... I think that the, the reason Infocoms hold up, especially the early ones, is because they're not games so much as they are novels. They are experiences, and you have an experience, and you can put it on the shelf, and then you can bring it down and have the experience again. That's why I don't think the multiple storylines worked. You don't replay Zork the way you replayed, like, Minor 2049er, to throw in another mid-'80s <laughs> video game reference. They're, they're anthologies, the, the multiple storyline ones. Uh, Cutthroats is an anthology of three fairly boring pirate stories. <laughs> it, I've read worse. It, 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 they're, they're the airplane novels of the interactive fiction world. I think that was one of the, the stated goals of uh, Infocom early on in their their early days was that they, they wanted their uh, their games to eventually be up on the shelves in a bookstore, you know, next to great literature. Which I think is a lofty goal, but perhaps overstated the the reach of the computer game industry in those those days. Well, they they continued. I mean, their their games continued to sell long after they were released, which was a rarity for the industry. Usually, right. a game comes out, blows up big, not big like today, but big for the time, and then would fade as people played it and got used to it and moved on. But if you come to Zork, you can play Zork the same way today that you played it twenty years ago. That, that, I think, too, was part of the rapid destruction that Activision uh, made on, on Infocom <laughs> after they acquired them, was they, they were... Treated them like regular video games. Were, yeah, they would keep their, their seven-year-old games on the shelves because people were still snapping them up. I mean, Zork popped up on the soft talk, you know, top sellers lists for half a decade. And then Activision came along and they, they treated Infocom games like they were standard computer games where... You know, the, the next big thing would come along with graphics that uh, looked like, you know, that the pictures looked like people instead of misshapen uh, two-dimensional <laughs> frogs of some kind. And so they'd replace the old with the new on the shelf, and, and they try to do that with Infocom. And I, I think they actually demanded, after they acquired them, that they produce eight games a year. Yeah, instead of the four they were producing. 
Right. Which is which. Wow, the quality went down. Big surprise. Yeah, shocking. That's uh, Zork is the dark side of the moon of interactive fiction. Of course, if Activision hadn't done that, I strongly suspect it, it would have happened shortly afterwards anyway, just because the uh, comp USAs of the world. Um, Plus, the, the computer game industry was changing. I mean, people wanted graphics. You know, Infocom right. had a, a famous ad where they say, we stick our graphics where the sun don't shine, and it was a picture of a brain. And you can get away with that with the fanboys, like, say, three people recording a podcast in yes. 2012. <laughs> But for the most part, people wanted their computers to do pretty colored things that moved around. Well, even as Infocom, they, Infocom part of Activision still, they did move into graphics beyond Zork had graphics. And, and they weren't very good. Well, they were still trying to, to, uh, to do interpreted games. So they had a limited amount of uh, you know, simplistic graphics that they could reasonably render on multiple uh, zip boxes. Z machines, which is what uh, which is what they called their interpreter. Zill, in case not Zip. Zill. Zill. No, Zill was the implementation language. Zip was the implementation <laughs> program. All right, you win. Jesus. You just got told. Which was which was later shortened to Z machine. It, it's actually probably worth noting that St- Scott Adams, who actually was first to market with the adventure game, mm-hmm. and if you go to his website, he proudly announces himself as the progenitor of the entire computer games industry. <laughs> Worth pointing out, this is not the Dilbert Scott Adams. This is a different Scott Adams. No, no, this is the Scott Adams of the Scott Adams adventure games. He put himself in the ads, right? He had a big fro. I think he he was in the ads, along with some very 70s-looking people dressed up in period costume. Anyway... But what what I was getting to was that he actually wrote an interpreter as well for his games, uh, previous to the the Zork uh, arrival on the scene. I'm clearly getting out nerded here, so I'm going to throw down my trump card, which is that I've written adventure games. I wrote my own parser and my own lexer, and um, nothing ever happened with them. But damn, that was fun. Nerd. <laughs> in, I think, fifth grade or so, I was in an elementary school that had a computer lab full of Apple IIs, and we were told we had to write a, comp- a fancy computer program. And I found this whole thing boring and a little insulting because I had a TRS-80 at home, so naturally I hated apples. So I wrote a fake adventure game that looked like an adventure game as long as you did exactly the right move each time. <laughs> if at any point you typed anything other than the required input, it would just say, I'm sorry, I don't understand that. You realize that you've uh, like anticipated demos at the Consumer Electronics <laughs> Show by a couple of decades. Yep. So when it came time to display it to the teacher, I said, go ahead and try it. And she typed something. Oh, I, I guess I didn't anticipate that word. Here, let me show you how it works. And then it worked perfectly. <laughs> I started out writing what amounted to choose your own adventures, where you were presented with a situation and you could type, you know, one through four to to pick different options. But then I eventually did a little research and, and a lot of trial and error and started parsing reasonably complex English sentences and having reasonable puzzles. I, you know, had an inventory system and a container system and... This was all without benefit of any sort of, you know, how the people who knew what they were doing actually did it. But I, I wrote four or five games that my friends played and solved and complained about relentlessly. I did write a book on solving Infocom games. Damn, I'm not going to win this nerd battle, am I? <laughs> my friend and I were at 
the computer store shopping for the next Infocom game, which I think was Infidel at the time. And the smarmy guy who's don't who's don't helping don't put us. the ring on. It's got a needle in it. Well, what's the difference? You're going to die at the end of the game anyway. <laughs> Very unsatisfying. Speaking of which, yeah, what's your what's your view on that? That was a lousy ending. Really? Yeah. It didn't make it clear the game was over. I thought I had screwed up. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you that. I I don't think if they had explained you have won, but you're <laughs> dead, I would have understood what was going on. Right. Yes. Now, I think I realized it was over, or, or else I probably would have had a similar complaint. But I, I thought it was a great ending. But I completely understand where people were, were ticked off about it. Anyway, the smarmy guy that was helping us heard us bragging about how we had won Planetfall in three days. And he said that he was looking for people who were good at Infocom games. Because he had just written a book called A Shortcut Through Adventureland, which was how to solve a bunch of the Sierra Online games. So what ended up happening was... My friend and I wrote the entire book, got 60% of the royalties. It was just how to solve the first 10 Infocom games, and the publisher went bankrupt the day the book itself, so I never got anything oh, out awesome. of it. But I was like 14 or 15, so it was still pretty neat. I back back I wrote walkthroughs, you know, step-by-step yeah. walkthroughs for my friends. This was before you could actually do anything like put them online. But um there were, you know, there was a a brief shining moment of my childhood where it was cool to be able to solve infocoms and tell other people how to do it. And then they put me in a trash can and rolled me down a hill. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, okay, okay. I, I will see you your book authorship. And I, I beta tested infocoms. I beta tested Leather Goddesses of Phobos and Lurking Uh-oh. Horror and... Monty's going to bust out his bureaucracy story. And totally <laughs> Hollywood Hijinks and Fublitsky. Now, what was Fublitsky? Because I've never been sure. Uh, Fublitsky was a board game that half of it took place inside the computer. The computer had the role of, you know, like they have modern versions of Monopoly where the bank is controlled by uh, a little the government? plastic device that comes with it. And every player has a credit card rather than cash. Fublitsky was similar where it would roll the dice and it would set you goals. Fublitsky can generously be chalked up as an interesting experiment. Okay. It was not infocom I remember seeing lots of ads for it, but I never understood any of them. There were dogs involved. I, I have to say that, Greg, your beta testing of Infocom games is pretty cool. It's going to be hard to top that. I'm super jealous. It, I, I, I felt pretty damn special. I mean, it was, it was just like, this is as good as it gets, which unfortunately turned out to be true. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It turned from a happy ending to a sad ending so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's my bureaucracy story. Yes. In 1987-1988, Infocom was doing the Marathon of the Minds as a way to get publicity for their new games. What they do is they take their game that was just about to come out and go to a city in the United States. And then all the high schools in that city would send three student teams to a location and then they'd play the game until one of the teams won. The teams were composed of people pulled out of trash cans at the bottom of the hill? <laughs> Largely, yes. <laughs> For Bureaucracy, which was the second Douglas Adams game, although, as previously mentioned, Douglas Adams may not have had that much to do with actually doing anything. His name was on the box. That's enough. That's true. For Bureaucracy, the city was San Diego. And I got to be one of the kids on the team. 
which was actually highly contested because I was going to a math science computer magnet school at the time. <laughs> so there was just a hill with thousands of trash cans lying on the base. And there's one exhausted bully who has to keep putting the kids in the trash cans. Well, it was a weird school because it was in a bad, bad part of town. And there were Crips and Bloods who were the local students. And then a bunch of us pasty white math science computer kids being bussed in. Well, it's probably good that you were pasty so you couldn't be mistaken as a crip or a blood. <laughs> At any rate, we, uh, we were all shipped out to the Reuben H. Fleet Space Theater and Science Center in Balboa Park. And each school had its own little computer station in the Science Center. And we played for 37 hours while being supplied with endless amounts of Coke and pizza getting bleary-eyed and insane by the end of it. When, when, when you say played for 37 hours, was there any break? No. Well, I mean, you could take a break if you wanted, but that meant the other teams would get ahead of you. Did you go to the bathroom? Yeah. Did you stand up to do it? <laughs> yeah. Like, there okay. were three people on the team. You don't need all three people at the computer the whole time. No, no, guys, I got this great plan. Catheters. <laughs> but as it happens, my team won. So I can, first of all, state that I was the first person outside Infocom, one of the three first three people outside Infocom to win bureaucracy. And I also actually got my name printed in the New York Times later, the status Ooh. line, which was their official newsletter. They got sued by the New York Times in yeah. order to change that. And I got a cool T-shirt, which I still have. Of course you do. <laughs> and we won something like copies of all the games for the school. My favorite moment, though, was they had copies of other games that were about to come out, one of which was Hollywood Hijinks. And one of my teammates snuck over and started looking through the materials because he had a pirated copy of Hollywood Hijinks, and he needed to read the documentation to get past the... Mm -hmm. Infocom copy protection, which took the form of secret hints inside the documentation itself. The feelies. Yes. The physical items. Which I thought was pretty clever because they never bothered putting any actual copy protection on their games, which made them almost unique at the time. Well, it was, it was copy protection that wasn't really, really intrusive. It was integrated into the game. And that was terrific. You know, it was, it was something that, that wasn't easily reproduced, like it wasn't digitally reproducible. And you actually had to pay attention to everything that came in the package. Yeah. And then, so when you had Sorcerer, for example, you actually had this thing they called an infotator, which had a two rotating dials that you had to line up to tell you what color a grew was. The problem right. I find, though, is that later on when they came out with the Lost Treasures of Infocom CD-ROM packages... They didn't include all of the documentation, so some of the games became accidentally impossible. <laughs> well, they built like they built the Invisiclues, were you know the aftermarket hint books that they came with invisible ink and a pen that you could drag across it to reveal the answer yeah. or in, in, answers in increasing specificity. And then they integrated those into the games later on, where you'd type hint and it would give you the hint. It just it it never seemed as cool. Well, it's not supposed to seem cool. You're looking at hints. <laughs> you should hang your head in shame. <laughs> That's right. It's supposed. It's not supposed to feel good. One good thing about the Lost Treasures of Infocom set was they actually included 
all of the maps and all of the Invisiclues in book form, which was great because the Invisiclues were usually written with at least as much attention to humor as, uh, as the games themselves were. And so they were often as funny to read through uh, as playing the games were. They'd always have questions that applied that didn't have anything to do with the game, just so they could have a few nonsense answers and then an answer saying, "This there isn't this room in this game. Stop just looking at answers and go back to playing." Yeah, they did. They didn't want to. They didn't want the questions, which were printed in regular ink, to to give away anything about the game, so they'd include the fake questions. You know, I worked at a, at a software store um, years and years and years ago, and people would try and return the Invisiclues <laughs> after having used them. Jeez. It's no use to me now. <laughs> no, no, ma'am. I'm sorry that that you you can't. No, sorry. Yes, you can see the manager. I'll be right back. <laughs> so do you guys play text adventures anymore? Have, have you? I mean, other than the originals, you can go back and play the old ones, but they're still being produced. And there's a, a small but very vibrant community that that is still making games. Have you have you played any of these? Anytime recently? I have. I'm, I'm surprised. <laughs> if you watch the documentary Get Lamp, which is a documentary about text adventures, the DVD comes with about 50, I think, text adventures on the disc. There's an iPad app. Um, Frots. Yeah, Frots comes with a couple of hundred. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. I've played two or three modern games. I played Vespers, which is this game where you're a monk trapped in a monastery at the top of a mountain while everybody dies of plague around you. Sweet. It's kind of a downer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're on top of a mountain. That's really kind of the only way you can go. <laughs> and there's a game called Photopia, P-H-O-T-O-P-I-A, which is technically a text adventure in that you're entering commands and it's got a text adventure interface but really, it's a, a short story about somebody dying in a car crash. And are you the that person? You're everybody. It's super postmodern. And I get the feeling that people have gotten tired of text adventures as games and are really trying to branch out and do text adventures as literature or text adventures as art. Or actually, the game I was going to mention is Lost Pig, which won the IF competition oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. two or three years ago. It's just a... a I hadn't played games in in eons. I mean, in you know, since the Paleozoic, and it was great fun because it's so highly polished that it was a, a reintroduction to the genre. But I, I haven't sat my I sat my kids down a couple of years ago and tried to get them interested in Zork, and they got it, but they just didn't follow up. They're right now they're currently obsessed with Minecraft. Um. But they wandered around the house a little bit, they got inside, and then they just drifted away from it, which was disappointing. And I want to try again with Lost Pig, just because it's so funny and it's so well done. Here's one of the room descriptions from Lost Pig. Fountain room. All wall in this room glow. It bright, just like daytime. Except that instead of sun, it wall that glow. And instead of grass and tree, it's square room with four wall. And instead of outside, it all underground. But beside those things, it just like it. Tunnel keep going out to east and west, but normal doorway go north and southeast and southwest. In middle of room, there fountain, but fountain not have any water. South wall have big curtain hanging on it. Pig here, too. Pig look over, then pig look away. You're basically paying a caveman trying to get his pig back. 
The pig is great in that game too. It's so well written. He comes, even though it has obviously no uh, no dialogue to speak of, it's it's uh, the descriptive text about the pig is is so well done that it's probably one of the most memorable characters in interactive fiction that I can remember. Well, that's what struck me was that the prose of the game is written from your perspective, which, you know, usually there's descriptions of things going on, but I've never seen the descriptions written as uh, the character would perceive them. Yeah. A lot of Infocom games are written from a sarcastic third person point of right. view. Right. You you are here. Witness had some Raymond Chandler qualities to the writing, but not a lot. And Lurking Horror was supposed to be H.P. Lovecraft, but yeah, they were written as they they were written by an author rather than written right. as the perspective of the character. And when the character has limited mental capacity and vocabulary, you end up with something like Lost Pig. And I thought that was really fun and really different and something even 30 years into the genre that I had never seen before. Yeah, so I've, uh, I actually did play Lost Pig because when I downloaded Frots, it was recommended as, as a fairly easy and good uh, first place to start for interactive, interactive fiction. Um, but I haven't really explored much on the modern stuff because, you know, y- you and I, well, both of you and I, the plural you, um, use know that uh, that that nerds generally are not great writers, and they tend to write uh, pretty schlocky, pretty uh, derivative stuff. And uh, so I, I, I'm a little afraid to take a chance on some random guy that's you know that posted to the IF archive. Um, and I still have enough. Uh, of the old Infocom games that I haven't played that I can still go back if I feel the need and uh, and and give one of those old games a, a shot. Now, I have actually considered maybe playing, uh, I guess, a couple of... There were a couple of games that were written a few years back by uh, Yahtzee, Ben Crawshaw, the guy who does the zero <laughs> punctuation uh, reviews. God, on, I love uh, those. Oh, they're hilarious. So I imagine those are those are probably pretty good, although... It's hard to say. I assume he doesn't use the same kind of uh, you know rapid fire style in his adventure. There games. are no spaces in this description. I can't read that any would, of this. That would get fairly tedious. Um, I I find I don't have the attention span anymore. Plus, have you seen Skyrim? Man, that thing's beautiful. <laughs> I love text adventures, but it's really really hard to not just stare at a beautifully rendered Portal Two or something. Yeah, yeah. That's I. I find that uh, what Monty said about Skyrim kind of applies to me too. Is that I, I have such limited time these days to to game that I can go back and play an old text adventure and spend the inordinate amount of time it takes to really figure all of the puzzles out and all of that stuff. Or I can spend twenty minutes walking around Oblivion, you know, slaying goblins and having. Sadly, a, a more rich experience really playing that than than I I could going back to the old text games. Much as I love them, most games these days don't require a pad of graph paper by your side at all times. How much how much of our affection for these games is just nostalgia? Uh, for me, I'd say about sixty percent. <laughs> the really good ones. 61, not, like sixty-two point eight. I, I mean, yes, they hit me at exactly the right age. But the good ones are still really good. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if somebody is willing to spend the time to play through Planetfall, Floyd's death is still 
a really good moment. Damn it. And I'll fight the man who says otherwise. I loved these games. I mean, they they affected my childhood. They They are signposts for, sadly, what I've become. But I don't know that I would play them these days. I don't know that my kids have an interest in playing them. And I just wonder if they were such a product of their time and of the technology that something like that is not going to happen again. What if you just played them in a different context? At one point, somebody had set up an aim bot that would play Zork with you. That was a friend of mine, actually. Andy Bayo. Well, I thought it was a brilliant idea. Well, did, did either of you guys ever play any of the Legend games? After Infocom went uh, kaput, uh, a couple of the guys from Infocom, um, Steve Moretzky and Bob Bates, who did... Uh, sadly is only really known for having done uh, Sherlock and Arthur. But uh, they got together and formed their own company. Their crowning achievement, they put together a game called Time Quest, which is uh, effectively you're, you're following along uh, behind a guy who's, uh, who's uh, some evil dude who's run across a time machine and he's gone to various periods in history and screwed things up. And basically you're part of some kind of uh, you know time police department that has to go back in time and fix these problems this guy has caused and it's really really well done it's probably one of the best uh, adventure games that i've ever played and it's well worth digging up and, and giving a try hmm, i've never even heard of it they went to more of a point and click format at one point i think they did a game based on like they did a couple of xanth games oh lord and no, yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh something based on shannara <laughs> uh, sorry go on yes and but Moretzky continued to make games and he put together something I think his last game for them was uh, Superhero League of Hoboken which was really funny and really well done too so it's worth trying to dig those up if you can find them is it Moretzky or Merzetsky Moretzky ah, so I've been pronouncing it wrong for two and a half decades nice Gazebox Jeez. on that note i'm going to end the podcast this podcast is over um i would like to thank our participants today steve lutz thank you greg it's been a it's been an experience and monty ashley thank you good hosting greg and um score quit Roger Ebert is wrong. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't he always look like he's smiling these days? Yeah, he looks like he's really enthused about what's happened to him. <laughs> oh, All his pictures, he looks like he's saying, hiya! <laughs> like somebody just told him to say, chin up, Roger. And he did. Oh, if only he could chin up. <laughs> we uh, seem to be wandering a little bit here. Yes, yes. Look, what's wrong with nostalgia? I enjoyed something as a youth, and now I get to keep doing it. Half of the Twilight Zone episodes are about how that's good for you. (laughs) Don't you mean 60%? We're done here. Yeah.